Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. As we will see, Moses' parents showed remarkable faith in their actions around the time of Moses' birth. Actions which ultimately led to Moses' life and future calling, rather than an extremely premature death. We are going to explore what we can learn from this about the type of faith we should demonstrate and how we also can have the kind of faith they had. And hasn't it been great that the worship this morning has been all about stirring faith? So, let me start by praying. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I thank you so much for your word, the Bible. I thank you for the truths contained within it. Oh Lord God, would you help me to explain those truths clearly today? Lord God, would you open up our eyes to see more of you and to learn how we can have more faith? Amen. First of all, before we get stuck into what verse 23 has to say to us, I'd like to remind us of the context of this verse within chapter 11 and within the whole book of Hebrews. It is only by doing this that we can understand the depth and the breadth of what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, particularly with regards to how we respond to this in the way we live our lives. So, as we heard from Luke last week, we do not know who the author of Hebrews was, but we do know it was written to people who were experiencing difficult times. They were probably Jewish Christians who were facing persecution for their faith and they were tempted to turn their back on Christ and go back to their former ways of doing things. The Hebrews author frequently encourages his readers to persevere and to remain faithful and warns us against leaving Christ. The first 10 chapters explain the gospel of Christ, explaining how Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies to Israel through his death and resurrection. The author emphasizes just how much greater Christ is than anyone or anything that has gone before. He is greater than any angel, any priest, any old covenant institution. And because of this, the church is exhorted to hold on to its faith in Christ. And after the explanation of the gospel, chapters 11 through to 13 then give practical challenge about how we are to live our lives in the light of this gospel. So how does chapter 11 fit in? Well, in a book where the main themes are faith and perseverance, this whole chapter is dedicated, as we know, to faith. What it looks like, how we can demonstrate faith in our own lives. And the author does this by giving us a faith overview of the Old Testament. Not only does this teach us about the nature of faith, but it also provides great challenge. It challenges us regarding our faith by highlighting Old Testament characters who showed much faith, despite having far less revealed to them than we have. What do I mean by that? Well, these heroes of the Old Testament had only had some of God revealed to them. They didn't have the whole canon of scriptures that we have now, and most significantly, they didn't know Jesus. The writer reminds us that we have far better reasons to believe and to have faith than anyone in ancient Israel, including all of these examples in chapter 11, because we have Jesus. Unlike the ancient Israelites, God has spoken directly to us in the person of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we are in a far better position to believe God's word than any of these New Old Testament believers. 
And the men and women in Hebrews 11 are noted for their extraordinary faith. If we are not careful, we can think these men and women are different. They're in a different league to us normal believers. Their faith's different to our faith and therefore unattainable. They're somehow, you know, they're on a different, different league. But in doing this, we will misunderstand what the, Hebrews of, what the author of Hebrews is trying to say to us. The author gives us these examples not to put them on pedestals, but rather to give us examples of what faith looks like and to encourage us to act in the same way. The author wants us to grasp the nature of faith, not the characters themselves. And we are urged to learn from these examples so that we might also demonstrate faith of this nature. And if anything, demonstrate more faith than they did. As Phil Moore puts it in his commentary on Hebrews, it is much easier for us to have faith than they did because we've got the Bible, the Gospels explaining what happened when Jesus came, the church, collections of worship music, Christian books, and the early believers had none of this, and yet they still believed. How much more should we excel in faith as a result? And what a challenge that is when we actually read their exploits. So turning our attention to verse 23. It emphasizes one particular aspect of faith, and this is that faith conquers our fears. We read that Moses' parents, by faith, were not afraid. And it's this characteristic of faith that I would like us to explore for the remainder of our time today. So the author of Hebrews assumed that we knew the details of the story of Moses. So in order for us to gain a fuller understanding of this example of faith, we need to remind ourselves of the story of Moses' birth in the book of Exodus. So again, if you have a Bible with you, you may wish to turn to Exodus, two, uh, sorry, Exodus 1 and 2. We'll be reading from Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, through to chapter 2, verse 10. And again, the words have appeared behind me. Now, our passage is quite long, but I think it's really helpful for us to read the whole thing in order to get the whole context. And I'm reading from the um, New International Version. Exodus 1, verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal with them shrewdly, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pitom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kind of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shepra and Pur, when you help the Hebrew women during childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife arrives. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives fear God, 
he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all of his people, every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and covered it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So we see from this passage that the setting into which Moses is born is incredibly bleak. The Israelites had enjoyed prosperity and security in Egypt following the years of Joseph. However, verse 8 introduces a new period in Israel's history, a period of suffering and oppression. This is 200 years after Joseph, and the new king of Egypt has no regard for the past and for Joseph's role in the success in the nation of Egypt. Instead, he sees threat. He is fearful of the Israelite nation, fearful of their growth, and fearful of what they might do. So he oppresses them. They're subjected to slave masters, oppressed with forced labor, worked ruthlessly, and yet they still multiply, and so, so does the king's fear. And so does the fear of the whole Egyptian nation who came to dread the Israelites and worked them all the harder. So Pharaoh's tact changed murderous, and he instructed the midwives to kill any male babies. But when this also doesn't work, he then turns the whole nation against the Hebrews by saying that everyone should throw any Hebrew baby into the Nile. Male baby. It's hard to fully grasp just how dreadful this situation was. Not only were they being physically abused and oppressed, now they also had the acute and terrible pain of having their sons forcibly removed from them and killed. These were very, very dark days for the Israelites. They must have wondered what on earth God was doing and probably felt abandoned and forgotten. It's against this background of suffering that we hear the story of remarkable faith and trust in God that Moses' parents showed. The author to the Hebrews assumes that we know the full story of Moses' birth and early upbringing as we've just read and chooses to highlight just a couple of aspects of the story to illustrate for us the nature of faith. So he reminds us that by faith, Moses was hidden for three months because his parents saw that he was no ordinary child and because they were not afraid of the king's edict. And if that next slide could just come up with with the verse again. I'm going to explain that from these phrases we can understand the following three points regarding Moses' parents' faith. 
Because they saw he was no ordinary child, they believed God cared for him and cared for them. Because they hid him for three months, they believed God would save Moses. And because they were not afraid of the king's edict, they believed God would save them. And we're going to look at each of these points in turn. Firstly, his parents saw he was no ordinary child. I'm going to explain why this phrase leads us to understand that Moses' parents believed God cared for them. To begin with, let's further explore this phrase describing Moses. The account of Moses' birth is mentioned in three different places in the Bible, in Exodus 2, in Hebrews 11, and also in Acts 7, when Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin. The original Hebrew in Exodus is simply translated something like, she saw him, he was good. And the New Testament authors use a word that describes physical beauty. Consequently, we have various phrases and different translations that attempt to to help us to understand what it was that Moses' parents saw in their baby boy that was so striking that inspired their faith. Moses is described with, with phrases such as he was no ordinary child, he was a fine child, he was beautiful, he was fair in the sight of God. How does this assessment of Moses by his parents show us that they believed God cared for them? It would have been easy for Moses' parents to think that God had forgotten about them and the whole Israelite nation. The promises of God to their forefathers about being a great nation must have felt pretty painful under their current oppression. Surely they would have questioned what was God doing. He had led them there to Egypt and had promised great things, but where was he now? When were they going to return to their homeland? Where was the divine intervention that they were waiting for? There were no outward signs of the promises of God spoken to them generations before. Heaven was silent, and yet still they were suffering. But this is the story of God's people repeatedly over the ages. Times of God's presence would be followed by times without any tangible evidence of God's blessing, sometimes for hundreds of years. And yet still his people chose to trust him. Why? Because they believed God and they believed his promises, and they believed he would not lie, and they lived by the faithfulness of God because they knew he could be trusted, and they believed him because of what they had already seen of him. Moses' parents believed God. They believed God cared for them, despite their current circumstances. So when their son was born, they did not despair. They looked at him, and they saw that he was beautiful. And in seeing this beauty, they acknowledged that this beauty comes from God and that he was a gift from God and that God loved him and cared about him. Now, all parents think their newborn babies are beautiful. It's part of the natural parental instinct that means that parents are instantly and completely overwhelmingly besotted with their vulnerable new baby. I have had the great gift of experiencing this twice over. <laughs> I think they're very cute, as I say. I also have the immense privilege of sharing in this joy and this experience of new parents through my work as a doctor on the labor ward. There's nothing quite like the look on a new parent's face when they behold their son or their daughter for the first time. And they all say how beautiful they are. 
So imagine the turmoil that Moses' parents must have felt when Moses was born. Pregnancy can be quite tough. Childbirth is pretty painful. So the elation of birth is, uh, is quite dramatic. And that moment of seeing your child's face is, is, is wonderful. And I'm sure it was the same for Moses' parents. Wonderful. Oh, baby, he's been born. Oh, but he's a boy. We were kind of hoping for a girl because, you know, if he was a girl, then maybe we could have let this child live. But no, they said, but he's beautiful. They didn't say, oh God, why is he not a girl? Why didn't you give us a girl? Surely you don't care for us at all because you've given us a boy to be given up to death so that we might have yet more pain and suffering. No, they said, he's beautiful. He's God's. He's beautiful. But what were they going to do now? Were they going to obey Pharaoh's decree to condemn him to death? As they looked at their new son, faith stirred within them. They saw that he was a fine child. They saw that he was beautiful. They saw with eyes of faith that he was no ordinary child. They believed him to be fair in the sight of God. They believed he was a gift from God and that God cared for him and also for them. Now, we don't have any indication in the Bible that Moses' parents had any specific revelation from God about what future role Moses would have in leading his people. Perhaps God had revealed to them something of Moses' destiny, but perhaps not. I think it's more likely that Moses' parents acted in faith without knowing exactly why they were doing what they were doing. Instead, they simply believed that God cared for them, cared for their new son, and they were persuaded that God was at work with regards to this child and that they needed to hide him to save his life. They chose to believe that God cared for them rather than giving in to the fear that God cared so little that he had actually abandoned them and given them over to further grief. We can look at the world around us and be fearful that God has abandoned us, that he's turned his back on our cause and he's left us to our own devices. We see the ever-present evil in the world and we fear that we have to face it on our own. Elsewhere in the world, Christians today are facing persecution and suffering, even to the point of death. And in the UK, currently, we may not be experiencing that kind of physical suffering, but we are battling against a worldview and a culture that says much of what we believe is wrong. We can be ridiculed, we can be accused of being intolerant and backward in our thinking. We can be told that we're stupid for believing what we believe. We can feel that the world is against us and that our backs are against the wall and think, where is God anyway? And we can be tempted to think that these times are different to the times before. These times are worse. It's harder to believe God and our generation because of all this opposition that we have against us. But actually, that's not true. The people of God have suffered opposition from the very beginning. And Jesus clearly told us to expect trials and sufferings in his name. So this is not anything new. In fact, we should expect it. But 
We should not give in to the fear that God has abandoned us in our current situation, because he has not. No matter what that situation is, whatever it is that you feel that God has maybe not heard your prayer for, he has not abandoned you. He's clearly shown time after time through the ages that he always saves his people and that he has the best planned for his people. The Hebrews author in chapter 13, verse 5 says, reminds us that God has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And what is more, we have even more evidence upon which to base our faith in God. God's salvation plan for the whole earth has been revealed to us through Jesus. And we have the very being of God himself in our hearts, living in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So how can we doubt God and fear that he has abandoned us when he's actually living inside us? Instead, we can choose faith. Faith that God has chosen us, that he cares for us, and that he will never abandon us. So moving on to our second point. Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. They believed God would save Moses. Moses' parents trusted God for his life, his well-being, and his salvation. There are three separate periods in Moses' very early life which required different steps of faith from his parents. When he was first hidden, when they committed him into the Nile, and when they handed him back to Pharaoh's daughter. Initially, they trusted God that he would keep Moses hidden and safe in their own home. They trusted God that Moses would not be discovered and forcibly taken from them to be killed. This belief in God overcame their fear that harm would come to their child. They trusted God that he had better things planned for their little boy, for their son. Next, the moment came when, for some reason, they could no longer keep him hidden. And we're not given the explanation for this. Why, when they had originally managed to keep him hidden, did they now feel that this was impossible? But what we do know is that God was working out his purposes. So I do not believe that they gave up on young Moses or that they somehow ran out of faith for him. I believe that rather than running out of faith, what they had faith for changed. Therefore, in faith, they carefully planned and prepared Moses' next move. The Exodus passage tells us that Moses' mother prepared for him a basket made of papyrus and coated it with tar and pitch to make it waterproof. In my mind, this is not a mother who is abandoning her child to the river. This is a mother who is carefully ensuring that her child has the best chance of surviving his river journey. And it's underpinned by faith that God somehow will make a way for young Moses. Now, interestingly, the word for basket used in this passage is the same word used to describe the ark that Noah built. And it's the only time this word is used in the whole Bible. Just as Noah's ark was built to save his family, so Moses' ark was built to save him. Both stories demonstrate God's power of salvation and prophetically point to God's salvation for us through Jesus. But returning to Moses' mother, how hard must it have been for her to trust God in that moment? That moment when she paced her beloved son into that basket among the reeds. 
Three-month-old babies can smile and make noises and respond to those who love them. I cannot imagine the pain of seeing that baby smile for his mother turn to tears as she put him down and walked away. My children sometimes go into nursery. I find it really hard just leaving them for a day just to go to work when they cry and they, Mommy, don't go. She was committing him to who knows what. And he couldn't understand. He was just three months old. And she must have been thinking, what's, what's going to happen? Is he going to drown in the water? Is he going to get eaten by some animal? Is he going to be found by the wrong person? What's going to happen? But yet she chose to trust God. It must have gone against every fiber of maternal instinct that she had in her. But she trusted that God would protect Moses. She trusted that God's plans and purposes would prevail. But to do this, she had to turn Moses completely and utterly over to God. By placing him in the water, she was handing him over to God, handing him over to God's care, 100%. This is something that every Christian parent must do. We must reach a point where we wholeheartedly give our children over to God. If we do not, we are not trusting God with every area of our lives. We are saying, God, I believe you that you're good enough to control most areas of my life, but not my children. I'm the best person for that job. They're mine. I love them. And I'm not going to let go of them. Ultimately, this, this attitude will lead to more heartache rather than less. On the one hand, we will find ourselves inadequate to protect our children the way we want to, and we will run ourselves ragged trying to. We will also be so concerned with trying to protect our children that we have no time or energy for anything else. And on the other hand, we will inadvertently make gods of our children, elevating them to a position above God himself. This can happen subconsciously when we reject plans and purposes for our lives because of our children, sometimes using what sound like quite good excuses. Oh, I couldn't move there because my children's education would suffer. Oh, I couldn't give away that money because that was for the children's presence. Oh, I couldn't talk about Jesus at the school gate because then my child will, will get bullied. Oh, I couldn't prioritize church because my children have got activities that they, that they need to do. But this is all wrong. Yes, parents, we are called to look after our children well because they are a gift from God after all. But our first priority must remain to God and to God alone and nothing can be allowed to get in the way of this. We need to remember that our children are on loan to us from God but that they remain ultimately his. So we need to give them over to him 100%. And for those of you who are not parents, this challenge to ensure that God is always our first priority, no matter what, is just as relevant. Things in our lives other than children can also threaten to take center stage and to take our attention away from God. Money, status, career, possessions. We must not allow anything to come above God in our lives, and we must deal with it ruthlessly if we discover that something has. We must let go of everything that threatens to take our heart away from God.
Amazingly, Moses' parents had the agony of completely letting go of Moses, not just once, but twice. First, when he was placed in the basket, and second, when he was handed back to Pharaoh's daughter after his period of being nursed. We don't know how long Moses' mother had him for nursing, although it was probably maybe a year or possibly two. She must have celebrated every moment that she had with him, knowing that one day she'd be handing him back. Each time he woke in the night to feed, every nappy change, every cuddle, every cry, every moment must have been precious because she knew that she was going to be handing him back. I'm sure she invested all the love she possibly could into her little boy. I'm sure that she told him time and time again the stories of his ancestors and the truths about God so that his young ears would hear those things that wouldn't be spoken over him again. There must have been such a sense of urgency to explain everything to him and praying fervently that his young mind would somehow retain what was spoken over him. I also wonder what his older brother and sister would have made of him. We know from elsewhere in the Bible that Aaron was Moses' older brother by three years, and that Miriam was his older sister, again, presumably older, based on her role in the story we've just read. It must have been hard for Moses' parents to explain to their other children that Moses was different, that Moses one day would have to go away to be with a different family, and that they weren't sure when they were going to see him again, or if they were going to see him again. And I have no doubt that the whole family was deeply affected by this situation. But Moses' parents had faith. They trusted God, and then they handed him back to Pharaoh's daughter. Now, they would have been aware that the likelihood of Moses ever embracing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was made virtually nil by the pagan education he was about to receive. He became a royal prince and therefore received a royal but very Egyptian education. Uh, we know from Acts 7:23 that Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of Egyptians and mighty in words and deeds. He became an expert in astrology, in the Egyptian sciences, Egyptian philosophy, Egyptian history, the Egyptian language. But he would have received no education in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or learned the truths about God handed down from generation to generation by the children of Israel. It would have seemed impossible to imagine that he would ever understand his true background, let alone ever embrace it. And yet he did. He embraced it and he went on to become a great leader of his people, having rejected his Egyptian upbringing and instead turning, and turning his back on the advantage and privilege that he could have enjoyed as an Egyptian prince, turning back to his people instead. So what happened? Well, God does amazing things. God does unexpected things. God does impossible things because with God, nothing is impossible. And I have no doubt that the role his parents played was vital. Their influence on Moses must have been vast and profound because against all odds, he grew up to identify as a Hebrew and not as an Egyptian. Those early months when they nursed Moses must have had significant influence on him. And beyond that, the power of their ongoing prayers and their faith that God would keep him was critical. I'm certain that Moses' parents committed him to God and prayed for him without ceasing after they had said goodbye. 
We must never underestimate the power of our prayers for our children, and we must never stop praying for them. This includes when we are raising them in our homes and also when they have left our home, whenever that may be. Our role as parents is to teach our children the right way to live and to demonstrate to them the love of God in the hope that they themselves one day will choose to follow Jesus. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he, was, when he is old, he will not turn from it. But all this is done prayerfully, knowing that it's not in our power, but it is in God's. So we entrust our children to God's care, and we pray for them continually. Even if you're not a parent here, I commend to you to pray for the children in this church. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. Therefore, each of us has a role in teaching the next generation about God and praying for them that they might grow up to know Jesus and to follow in his ways. And what encouragement this story is, that God does work his purposes, even when the evidence seemingly points in the opposite direction. Moses became a great leader of his people, despite a very unlikely background. But his parents had to wait a very long time until they saw their prayers answered. Moses was 40 before he returned to his people. So this encourages parents of children who have not yet turned to the Lord or for whom there are other long-standing long unanswered prayers. God is God for the long haul. And if we truly trust him for our children, if we truly turn them over to him, we must trust him to carry out his purposes in them, however long that takes. And this is also true for other family members and loved ones. Maybe you're not a parent, but instead have other family members who do not know God. Your prayers for them are vital. Your petitioning before God on their behalf, essential. And God hears. So you also need to turn them over to God's care and trust him that he will work out his purposes. The example of Miriam, Moses' sister in the Exodus account, also encourages us here. Miriam played a vital, pivotal role in Moses being returned to his family for his early life. We read that Miriam watched at the riverside to see what would happen to Moses. Now, was she told to do that by her parents? Or maybe she suggested it? We don't know. But we do know that she, like her parents, showed tremendous courage. As she carefully watched her baby brother, she saw Pharaoh's daughter notice him. She observed that woman's face as she saw the baby and recognized in it compassion and a tender heart. Bravely, she then approached her and boldly offered to find a nurse for the baby. This showed an astonishing courage indeed. Here was a young Hebrew girl, a member of the dreaded Israelites. She was showing the nerve to speak to the Pharaoh's daughter. This is massive. And yet it worked. It could have gone badly wrong. It could have backfired. Miriam could have faced unknown consequences for her and her family. But instead, because of her boldness, her baby brother was brought back to his mother and to his family to be nursed. 
and with the royal blessing, with a few extra pounds in their pocket as well. What a tremendous result. I'm so encouraged by this aspect of Moses' story. Miriam must have seemed pretty inconsequential. She must have been quite a young girl. She was young, she was female, she was a member of the slave nation, and yet she demonstrated great faith and courage and was used by God and was absolutely instrumental in bringing about God's plans. She trusted God, she had faith for her brother, and she was rewarded. Furthermore, Miriam's influence didn't end there. Later, she herself plays a role in the leading of her people, described as both a prophetess and a worship leader later in Exodus 15. I think she probably had the influence of her parents' godly upbringing as well. Maybe today you feel small and inconsequential. Maybe you're young. Or maybe you have other reasons for feeling insignificant or unimportant. Do not underestimate how God can use you. Trust him and allow him to use you in mighty ways. God has a habit of using the unlikely people, of doing the unexpected. So believe him and believe the role that he has for you in his plans and purposes. So now our third and final point they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' parents believed God would save them as well. By their actions, Moses' parents demonstrated great courage because they took a great risk to do what they believed was right. They believed that doing the right thing, doing what God wanted, was more important than following the rules of an earthly king. And they were prepared to face the consequences for their actions. It is unclear exactly what those consequences would have been. But in the context of oppression, slave labor, and organized mass murder of children, I can only imagine that the consequences for disobedience would have been pretty severe. But Moses' parents chose faith over fear. Any fear of suffering and of death was outstripped by their faith that God was greater. They believed that following God was more important than any earthly command. They believed God was trustworthy, they believed his promises were true, and they believed him for deliverance. As Christians, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are also believing God for his deliverance. We're believing that God has conquered sin and death. We are believing in his power. And this leads to faith which overcomes the fear of death. But do we walk in this way? Do we truly trust God with the whole of our lives and our very lives themselves? Because if we truly believe the promise of an eternity that is even better than this current life, and we believe that earthly suffering is, is merely a passing phase, then we must believe that death is nothing to fear and that our reward is so much greater. How different would our lives look if we started to live more in the reality of this? 
And we have a further example of this kind of fearless faith in the passage we read in Exodus, the fearless faith of the, of the Hebrew midwives. Through this example, we see the challenge we can face for our faith in the workplace, and we can take great encouragement from it. The Hebrew midwives are given an awful order to kill all the Hebrew male babies they deliver. This is a dreadful command to be given, and it's all the more dreadful considering the job that they had. Their job was actually to deliver babies safely, not to let them die, not to deliberately kill them once they've safely come out. And childbirth was quite a bit more risky in those days than it is now. How horrible to be told they had to kill those very babies that they'd safely delivered. It's no wonder that these brave midwives did not want to obey the king's command. But not wanting to do something and actually having the faith to stand up against it is very different. However, we are told that the midwives feared God, so they did not do as the king instructed. Bravely, they did what is right, and cleverly, they gave an explanation to the king that must have had an element of truth for it to have been believed so readily. And they are remembered by name for their faith in God and for their faithfulness. And these midwives knew that they needed to obey God and not man. So do we. So maybe you can identify with these Hebrew midwives. Maybe you're facing a challenging situation in your workplace because of your faith. Maybe you're being required to stand up and be counted. Or maybe you're facing pressures that can only be faced with God's strength. Or maybe you simply need this encouragement to store it away in the back of your mind so that when the future challenge comes, you can be reminded of it and stand strong. By trusting in God and believing in his faithfulness, you will be able to do whatever he asks of you. So finally, in summary, we have seen today that the example of Moses' parents demonstrates to us a faith that overcomes fear. The fear that we have been abandoned, fear for our children and our loved ones, fear of death itself. Moses' parents believed that God cared. They believed that he would save their son, and they believed that he would save them also. Their faith is a great example to us. But we also can demonstrate this kind of faith by God's power. As we heard during the worship, faith is a gift from God, and therefore if we are lacking, we can ask him for more. So what area of your life do you need to ask God for more faith to overcome fear? Is it fear for your children? Is it a fear of man? Fear for something in your workplace? Or maybe you're still afraid of death itself. Maybe you're listening to this thinking, I haven't actually met with Jesus. I haven't actually put my faith in him. Well, there's opportunity for you today as well to learn more about what it means to put your faith in Christ and to know this eternal security 